Well, I need to call a meeting of the Operations and Facilities Committee after we're done because y'all broke the building singing uh, choir and church. And if you can hear in the distance, there's an ambulance rushing to the emergency room to carry demonic principalities and powers because they just got thumped. Amen. God bless you, Chris. Thank you. And music and worship ministry, thank you for your leadership this morning. Let me invite your attention to Genesis chapter 24. We continue our series on Isaac. And um, as you're turning there, I heard of a man in Gwinnett County who worked for Animal Control uh, who uh, got a phone call one day and was dispatched to a home in Gwinnett County where uh, the owner called in and said, I need you to come pick up my chow, my chow dog. And uh, chows are very loyal to their family. They can be rather stubborn. And um, the owner said, I, I can't do anything with him. I put him on a leash, and he's broken two leashes. Well, the fellow, the fellow from Gwinnett County Animal Control arrived and found out that what the man had was not a chow dog, but a grizzly bear cub. <laughs> and you know, that's not the first time something like that's happened. Uh, that happened in Gwinnett County with Animal Control. That sometimes happens in marriages. Someone gets married and they discovered, I didn't marry this cute furry person. Instead, I married a grizzly bear. Sometimes that happens. And they're terribly disappointed. Genesis 24 is going to help you with that. Well, that's a vivid image for a marriage, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, how in the world can you go about getting into a marriage that's going to last and is going to be with another decent human being that is in God's will, someone that follows the Lord, instead of marrying a grizzly bear. How in the world can you do that? Genesis 24 is going to help us here because Abraham is looking for a bride for his son Isaac, sends out a servant 500 miles north of Haran to find someone. He prays, God puts them together, he retrieves her, brings her back, and Isaac marries her. They have Jacob and Esau, and God's plan continues throughout the biblical storyline. That's not exactly how we do it today. Um, maybe we need to incorporate a few more of these things into our own uh, approach in uh, North America. But nevertheless, um, we've got some tremendous principles found here in Genesis chapter 24. And um, I want to ask and answer the question, how to get married? How to get married? And I want to use the acrostic spouse and preach a message from this text, using this text as an expository basis for it. What in the world do I do? How do I get married? Well, the S stands for start something. Start something. Now, it may uh, come as a surprise to some of you, my age and older, that we got to tell folks to start something, but that is a cultural reality. A lot of folks just don't know how to get started in this. Well, they did in Gen Genesis chapter 24. Look at verses number 37 and 38. Well, we can really begin in verse 34. So he said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he's become great, and he's given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he's given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go. And go up to Haran and find a bride. So this thing got started. This thing got started. 
And that is today one of the challenges uh, for 20 and 30-somethings in how to develop a serious relationship that will end up eventually in marriage. A lot, a lot of that wisdom that's been passed down from generation to generation got a stop a few years ago, and some just don't know how to get it started. Let me say this. Asking a girl out on a date with this intention and this um, uh, idea is not your first step. It's your third at the earliest. The American dating system is a series of signals and steps. Let me tell you, here's how it goes. The guy gets interested in a girl, and so he signals to her that he's interested. He comes up to her after a Bible study or a small group meeting, uh, in our case, for example, and he says, hey, that, uh, that insight that you had, that comment that you made was really insightful. I was really impressed. Well, she's kind of impressed that he noticed her. Well, a few days later, if uh, she's open to a dating relationship and she picks up on that signal and she is willing to uh, move things a little bit forward, she comes up to him, in my case, in my wife's case, hey, I hear that you like the Astros. They won their opening day game. Now, she doesn't care a bit about the Astros, but he does, okay? Uh, he does. And so she shows some interest in something that he is interested in. Now, he knows that she's from Georgia, or in my case, East Tennessee, and she knows that, and she doesn't care about the Astros one bit, but he does. And so she is signaling, I'm open. Well, a few days later, he comes up to her and says, hey, you know, you were speaking about the Astros the other day. I've got a few tickets to an Astros game. They're going to be in Atlanta, and a couple friends and I are going, would you like to go? And she accepts. See, he waits until the third step after a couple of mutual signals till he starts. Okay? Now, girls, listen. Please have a little mercy. All right? Don't turn to him and say, is this a date? Don't do that. Of course it is. Of course it is. All right? But it's not all that serious right now, so don't go by address. All right? Um, but, but have a little mercy. Um, he, he feels a big weight of responsibility. He's nervous. You're a girl, you're cute, you got big eyes, your face glows, you put stuff on it, you look wonderful, you smell better than he does. There's a lot going on there. And so if he's a little awkward and he's a little nervous, give him a break. All guys are. Maybe Tom Selleck's not, but he's 73 and taken, so he's not coming after you. All right? Give him a break. So start something. And so it's a series of steps and signals. Oftentimes initiated by him, sometimes a signal can be initiated by her, but uh, he asks. So asking a girl out is not your first step, it is your third step. Good, all right. If you make it your first step, you're going to freak her out. Now listen, if he asks you, be decent, you know, he's, you know say yes. Don't, don't make it too difficult on him, okay? But that's the first thing, start something. Second is your prayer life. In verse 42, the servant went down to, or went up to Haran, and here's what he did. And he says this, And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go. And then he goes on and asks God to show him a sign that the young lady is who uh, he is to uh, retrieve and bring back for Isaac's bride. So he prays. He cries out to God. He calls out to God, and that's what you need to do. You need to be praying about this thing every day. Now, of course, we need to be doing it, but a lot of folks talk about it more than what they actually do. 
You need to be pleading with God that he would guide and he would direct you. I've got a prayer list, by the way, that I give away uh, to, uh, to others that may be interested in it. Email me, text me, and I'll get it to you. But here's another thing you need to do. You need to have seven people that walk with God praying for you on a daily basis that you will marry right and stay within the will of God. God cares about this. He will hear you, and he will answer your prayer, and he will direct you. But there, there's, a, there's a, a third thing, and that is observe. In verse 37, in verse 37, Abraham made it clear. He said, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. In other words, Isaac cannot marry a pagan, devil-worshipping woman. Not going to do it. Uh, she's got to be somebody who will advance the mission of God. She's got to be somebody who is willing to follow the Lord. And it needs to be stated, it needs to be stated clearly, we do not date those who are outside a serious commitment to the Christian faith, to Jesus Christ. We don't do that. We keep our dating relationships in, keep our friendships with everyone, but our dating relationships uh, exclusively with those who walk with Jesus Christ and know him. By the way, one at a time, okay? But uh, that's what we do. And so we do not take uh, and do not grow interest in someone that is outside the faith. You're really telling on yourself a lot when you do. You're saying, Jesus Christ is not my priority. My romantic interests are. You make your priority those who follow Christ because if you marry outside the faith, you're, you're going to run a great risk that your children one day will not follow Christ. That'll be a divided marriage and a divided life, and your children will run a very high risk of dying and perishing eternally in hell if you marry that way. I mean, it's tough enough to get them to Jesus when both parents are serious Christians. And so you've got to be committed to the Lord and marry someone who has a life of obedience. Now, Please, do not come up and say to us, well, he goes to church or she goes to church. That's not enough. Ladies and gentlemen, most Christian churches in the United States do not believe in the biblical Christ. They do not believe in the biblical way of salvation. They do not believe in biblical obedience. I don't mean to denigrate them, but i got to tell you, most of the denominations 100 years ago abandoned the Word of God, and they're making up the faith as they go along. There are about 40 or 50 million Americans who are committed to the biblical faith, but there are tons of Americans that are going to churches that do not embrace the biblical definition of Christ and faith and obedience and salvation. So you need something more than church attendance. A person's faith is not revealed merely by church attendance, though that's a part of it, but by obedience to Christ. And you've got to observe that. You've got to observe that, and time will manifest that. The Bible makes it very, very clear in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17, that light has no fellowship with darkness. You, you can't have both in the same place. One will expel the other. And you, Christ has no fellowship with demonic powers at all. And so we stay separate in our most um, intimate connections when it comes to these things. So we observe. We observe their obedience. Then fourth, understand. Look at verses 43 through 46. This is remarkable. He's praying that something like this will happen. And he tells the story, Behold, I, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, I say to her, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, Drink, and I'll draw water from your camels also. Let it be her, the woman, whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. So he's asking, God, please 
send here as the woman you want for Isaac, the woman who's a hard worker, and she goes beyond what's expected. See, he asked for water, but she says, I'll give you water and water for your camels. Well, there are 10 of them, and 10 of those jokers can drink 200 gallons of water. And so she draws water for all 10 of them. She goes beyond what is expected. She works. She has, in other words, a very positive and good attitude towards work, and she's going to need that because she's going to live in a tent. And she's going to be part of the mission and program and plan of God to bring the Messiah into the world by giving birth to Jacob. And that's what she does. So uh, he uh, has an understanding here of her maturity. And so you'll want to ask some questions about the maturity. How do they handle work? How do they handle anxiety? How do they handle conflict? How do they handle delay? Right? Now, back in 1996, I was pastoring a church in North Carolina. And we had that year five or six couples in our church that celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary all in one year. They were World War II brides. They got married right after the war. They, they uh, fell in love with a young man uh, from church and um, they, um, uh, he went off to war. He came back, thank God, and they got married in 1946. In 1996, I helped them celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. And here at Beach Haven, we've had more than 66 couples that have celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. Well, I listened to their stories, and it was kind of remarkable. They would get married, and they would, or they, they would, uh, he'd ask her to marry him, give him a ring, and about three weeks later, they'd show up at the preacher's house and get married in his living room. Or they might have a small wedding at the church. All the weddings were small. And usually the engagement period was three weeks. And I thought, there is no way that would pass the day. No way at all. And I thought, that's kind of quick. But it wasn't. Because they had been going to school together since kindergarten. And they'd been going to church together all those years. And their families knew one another. And so, I mean, she was low-hanging fruit. Three weeks, it's ready to go. What else does he need to know? He's been watching her 18 years. You see? Well, that, that's what I'm talking about here. So you may hear some stories like that from some older couples. You don't need to meet someone and be married in three weeks. Okay? You need to take some time and observe some things. And so observation comes with uh, time. So understand. The, the, the fifth thing is stability. Uh, they've got some significant stability in verses 35 and 36. The Lord has blessed my master greatly. He's become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when he, she was old. And to him, he's given all that he has. So he has got stability in his life. In other words, he's able to take care of her. And she is of such a nature, she can take care of him uh, in, um, uh, in the proper way. And so they have got some stability in life. Proverbs 24, 27 says this, prepare your work outside, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. There has got to be some practical, financial, and vocational stability, according to Proverbs 24, 27, uh, before you marry. Have that together. 
stability. And then there's one final thing, and that happens to be elders. I want you to see how the elders and their family respond and reply. Now, Rebecca is part of a larger household. Her father's there, mother's there, brothers are there. And after hearing the story from Abraham's servant, this is how they reply. Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. The elders and the family said, God is in this. And then look how they bless this relationship. Verse 57, look what it says here. So they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? Back 500 miles south to the household of Abraham where Isaac is waiting. Will you go with this man? Now it's interesting. Rebekah here gets a choice. Isaac doesn't get a choice. Anytime someone tells you the Bible is anti-woman, ask them about Rebekah in Genesis 24. Everywhere the Bible goes, the status and liberties and condition of women is always elevated. And so that's what happens here in this text. Rebekah gets a choice here. And so she says at the end of verse 58, I will go. And so they sent away Rebekah, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. And she has. There are 14 million descendants come from Rebekah. The mother of thousands of ten thousands. May your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. And they do. They end up blessing this relationship. Now, before I finished seminary, I had 25 guys I went to school with who were in ministry who were already divorced from their wife. Baptist ministers who divorced either in college or seminary, and usually their wives left them. Variety of circumstances. One of those friends was a best friend of mine. And I was with him every day for eight months. Every day for eight months while he uh, rebounded and recovered as best he could uh, from being left at Christmas time in 1986. And I watched him mourn and I watched him grieve. And I heard his cries, guttural cries out to God. And I heard his broken heart. And I heard a sense of betrayal. Really did. It was awful. And before, that was... Um, after four years of college, I was in my senior year. Then I went to Southwestern, and at the end of that time, I had 25 ministry friends that I went to college and seminary with whose uh, marriages were over and done with. When I was with that friend at the end of my college years, the one I was with every day for eight months, he had a lot of conversations with people who had gone through the same thing he did. There was sort of an informal support group that he went through. And I was with him, and I started counting it. I was with him, and we had 25 conversations, quasi-interviews with those who went through. And I found there were four things in common with just about every one of them. One, the day they got married, they knew it was a mistake. In fact, they knew it before they got married. Okay. The second thing is, in dating, they saw immaturity that really discouraged them. And they saw signs that the marriage was not going to work. The third thing is, is they had no premarital counseling. 
Let me put a plug in for that. I've done more than 100 weddings, and at last count, 97% of those I'd married were still married. Every one of them went through premarital counseling. It's not a guarantee, but it really increases the likelihood. The fourth thing is, and this is what was really profound, each of their parents objected to the wedding and the marriage. Each of them objected, and they said, this is not a good idea. But this young couple knew better. Now, let me say to you, if you've gone through and you've suffered a divorce, you are in the right place here at Beach Haven, and we want you here. Okay, you, you keep coming back. we got a lot of folks that have been through that, and they have been wildly successful and victorious in second marriages. Okay? And some have decided not to remarry. They've had opportunities, and they've been wildly effective for Jesus. You are in the right place, and you are wanted here. Okay? But let me shepherd my flock for just a moment. Don't, don't be hurt by what I'm saying here. Okay? Let me shepherd my flock. I've got a lot, of, a lot of singles, a lot of college kids, a lot of high school kids, and others that are looking forward to marriage. So give me a chance to shepherd my flock here. But those four things were prevalent, were prominent in every case of the 25 conversations and interviews that we had. The final thing I want to focus on is the parent's voice and the premarital counselor as well. Let me suggest to you, do premarital counseling and give your parents and the premarital counselor the brakes to your car of marriage and veto power if necessary. Take your time. If they object at first, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. There's just something disturbing their soul that they've got to uh, have satisfied. Take some time to do that. Okay, Take some time to do that. But give... The, give your parents and give the premarital counselor some breaks and give them veto power. I've done that with mine. Now, of course, you know what happened. She went out to meet my parents and just wowed them. So uh, they didn't have any questions about her. They had questions about me. But <laughs> I had no questions about her. But uh, do that. Make sure that you're humble enough to listen to others. And here's what you've got to understand. They may not think all these thoughts and they may not have it all reasoned and outlined and enumerated one through four like I do today, but they just have this gut check sometimes or they have these senses, uh, this parental sensitivity, you know, uh, we used to call it mom's eyes in the back of her head, you know, dad's got this thing going on inside of him. They know their kids better sometimes than they realize they do. What you need to understand is when you marry, you are not only marrying an individual and a romantic partner. A young man is not only marrying a wife. A, a, a young woman is not only marrying a husband. A young man is marrying the mother of his children. And a daughter-in-law and sister-in-law. See, And, and then, um, the, the same is true with the young woman. She's marrying the not only a husband, but a father. And, and what your parents are doing and what the premarital counselor is doing is that he's asking an an, they're asking an answer to the question, is this person a good fit for this family? Um, do, do, I want, do, do we want this offspring of ours to attach that person to our family? Do we want that person? In other words, you've got to understand, the person with whom you're interested is going to determine to a large extent the happiness and sorrow of your parents and of your siblings and of your grandparents and your aunts and your uncles. 
And they're going to be a big part of everything that goes on in your life with the major events of your family. It's only fair to listen to them and not merely impose somebody on them because you're stubborn and immature and can't listen to anybody. You don't want to do that. So be humble. Be humble. Give a premarital counselor and give parents some breaks at the very least and veto power as well. Now, I have read a lot of sermons on this passage, and it's really interesting the take that many have on Genesis 24. You know, the Bible teaches in Ephesians chapter 5 that our relationship with Christ is a picture of the marriage relationship, and the marriage relationship is a picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the groom, and the church is his bride. And so there are many that preach this passage, and they'll entitle it, for example, The Romance of Evangelism. There are lots of sermons with that title. And the notion is, is that just as Abraham sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac, so God sends his servants, the church, into the world to find a bride for Jesus Christ. To add to that. And that's what we're doing today. That's why we have prayed together. And we've had people prayer walk this whole worship center. That's why we offer the ministries that we do. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we have a pastor. That's why we teach our people to share the good news of Christ uh, on a daily basis basis because Jesus Christ wants to be unified with you like a husband and his wife and he has paid a price to get it done by dying on the cross being buried and raising again on the third day and so I want to ask you what was asked of Rebecca will you come will you come and meet Jesus Christ we're trying to introduce you to him well how do I do that Well, the Bible says that Jesus came preaching, repent and believe the gospel. That means you reject anything keeping you from Jesus. Is there pride? Is there exaggerated self-confidence in your virtue, in your works? Uh, Is there any doubt? Is there any fear? Set all that aside. Repent. Is, Is there some favorite sin that you love more than God? Set it aside. Reject it. And then trust that God loves you enough to save you and forgive you And he's proven that by sending Jesus to die and bleed at the cross and rise again. And you have to understand, that didn't happen apart from God. That happened because of God. Jesus died because that's what the Father and the Son wanted to happen. That was their plan. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor. He paid the price because he wanted to. And and so there's nothing in heaven keeping you from experiencing the full pardon from sin. Nothing at all. He can come into your heart. He can come into your life. He can cleanse you and make you pure and clean enough by the power of the cross and resurrection to where that won't be an issue when you stand before God one day and meet Him face to face. Boy, it's good news. And I can't imagine anyone saying no to that. And you're not going to today, are you? No, not at all. Let's pray about it. And why don't you open your heart and life to Christ and say yes to Him. And I'm going to give you the chance right where you're seated. Let me pray for you. Then you get to talk to God today and turn your heart and life over to Him. Father, thank You in Jesus' name for the opportunity to say yes to Him.